There we go. Good morning again. I'm glad to be here today in our Ecuador team's absence. We, uh, we started a series on the Minor Prophets back a few weeks ago. You may remember that. And uh, our senior pastor, Josh, just finished the book of Hosea last week. And so we're going to be in the book of Joel today. Uh, Joel has three chapters. We're going to look at the first two chapters today. And then next week, we will look at the uh, third chapter. If you remember a little bit about the Minor Prophets, <clears throat> they are, uh, they're called minor not because they're not important, right? They're called minor because, just because they're shorter than the other prophets. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those kind of uh, prophets are the major prophets just because they're longer books. And then the minor prophets tend to be shorter books. Um, right off the bat, though, there's a couple things, uh, that, or one thing in particular that we might notice different about Joel than from Hosea last, uh, over the last few weeks. So if you would, turn to Hosea chapter 1. And look at, look at verse 1. You may remember Josh talking about this some. Look at, look at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Okay, now flip over to Amos. Okay, so we have Hosea, and then we have Joel, and then we have Amos. So Amos is the book after Joel. Look at Amos for a second. Amos chapter 1, also verse 1. <clears throat> Amos begins his prophecy this way. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, now turn to Joel chapter one. Here's how Joel starts his prophecy. Chapter one, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Okay, right off the bat, there's a, there's a difference there, right? Hosea spends the first verse kind of dating himself, putting himself in, in context of, of, um, of the other prophets and especially in context of the kings. He says he's, he's the son of uh, Beeri, and then he names five kings uh, to date when his, when his prophecy, when, when, when he was writing, when he was prophesying. He names off Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were the four kings of Judah, while he was prophesying. And then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was the king of Israel when he was prophesying. Amos does the same thing. Amos, um, he, he gives even a little bit more information about himself. He says that he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So maybe that means he was a shepherd. Uh, we're not exactly sure. Later in the book of Amos, he gives more clues about, about his background, but that's not important today. But he, he says he's among the shepherds of Tekoa. Um, he says that his prophecy is concerning Israel. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. And then he names two kings to identify himself. He says that he was, he's prophesying during the time of Uzziah, uh, the king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. And then he also says that he's prophesying two years before the earthquake. Okay, I don't know what earthquake he's talking about. You probably don't either. Uh, but the people who were reading his prophecy at the time, they would have known 
what earthquake, right? He's, he's identifying himself and identifying the time that he's writing um, or the time that he's prophesying about by these different pointers in the, in the history of Israel. And then we come to Joel, and all that Joel says about himself is he's the son of Pethuel. We don't really know who Pethuel is, but he was, he was Joel's dad. He's the son of Pethuel, and we know that the name Joel means the Lord is God. Joel is a, uh, is, is a it means the Lord is God. Yahweh is Elohim, or Yael, uh, the Lord is God. He doesn't mention any kings at all in his, in his introduction. Um, and in fact, later in his prophecy, he mentions, uh, he mentions some of the elders of Israel. He mentions the priests, but he never even mentions the kings um, of, of Israel or Judah in his, in his prophecy. Maybe, maybe there were no kings during the time that, that Joel was prophesying. We don't really know when Joel was prophesying. That's, that's part, of the, part of the problem here, part of the point that I'm trying to make here, right? When we think about the minor prophets and, and really the major prophets too, we need to know, to know just a little bit about, about some of the history of Israel, not a, not a whole lot, but just a little bit, kind of a, a rough outline of the history of Israel. You'll remember that Saul was the first king of Israel, and then he didn't follow the Lord, and so God made David the second king, and then when David died, he reigned for a long time, was a good king. When he died, his son Solomon became king. And Solomon was also a good king for the most part. He followed the Lord for the most part till the, toward the end of his life. He built a temple for the Lord. But when, uh, when Solomon died, uh, there were these two, two guys, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Okay? And so Solomon's, king, uh, Solomon's son's name was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam became king, and, and the people came to him and said, listen, if you'll, your, your dad was really hard on us, when, especially toward the end of his kingdom, but if you'll just kind of lighten up a little bit, then, then we'll, we'll follow you, and we'll love you, and you'll be the best king, and we'll be the best people ever, and we'll have no problems between the people of Israel and, and you, Solomon, as our king. And so Solomon said, well, let me think about it. So he gathered some, some old guys, some, some wise elders that had been, they had been the, uh, the um, uh, the advisors of his dad, Solomon, and he asked them, so what should I do? This is what they said, what should I do? And the advisor said, if you lighten up just a little bit, your dad was a hard king. He made some, some hard demands on the people and the people toward the end of his life resented him for it. If you'll ease up just a little bit, then the people will love you and will follow you and you'll have no problems from them throughout the rest of your kingdom, kingship, the rest of your reign. And so he said, okay, that's, that's some good advice. And then he sent them away, and he gathered a bunch of young guys to come and, and advise him. And they, he said, what do you guys think? And they said, oh, the people are trying to make you look bad. The people are trying to prove that they're stronger than you are. Your dad was a powerful king, and he could do what he wanted to, and the people followed him. And now that you're the king, the people are wanting to not follow you, and they're wanting to ha- kind of have power over you. And so if you do what they say, you're just playing into that. If you do what they say, you're just telling them that you're kind of a pushover, and they can, they can get over on you whenever they want to. So instead of lightening up, easing up what your dad did, you should be harder than Solomon was, right? And so that's what he does. He follows the advice of the younger men. And what happens is the people rebel against him. And so where there was one kingdom under Saul, one kingdom under David, one kingdom under, uh, under Solomon, now under Solomon's son, the kingdom divides into two halves. And so now you have the, the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, which, is, which was most of them. The northern ten tribes were, was called Israel. And then you had the southern kingdom, Judah and, uh, and Benjamin, I believe, and that kingdom was called Judah. And it's divided. So the rest of the, of the Old Testament history until, they, until Israel is conquered by the Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians is this divided kingdom. 
And so you have these, these prophets and they're prophesying. Some are prophesying to Israel before they get taken over by the Assyrians and some are prophesying to Judah before they get taken over by the Babylonians and some are prophesying to Israel afterwards and some are prophesying to Judah afterwards. And, 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 and so all that helps you to understand um, which prophet is prophesying to whom and what they're talking about and, and all that's helpful to understand their, their work. And yet Joel doesn't really give us any of that. All Joel says is, I was the son of Pethuel. He doesn't mention any kings. <coughs> Some people think maybe that means that there were no kings. So maybe Joel's prophesying at the end of, kind of, kind of toward the end of Israel's history, after they've already been conquered and taken over by the Babylonians and the Syrians. And so there is no king in Israel anymore. And so that's why he doesn't mention the kings, and that's why he doesn't uh, date himself by the kings. Other people think maybe he does it on purpose because he doesn't want to date himself because he wants his message to be, uh, be kind of all-encompassing and be applicable to, to everyone. And I think we're going to see this morning that it is um, applicable to everyone, and I think we're going to see this morning especially it is applicable to us, to me and to you. And so we're going to look at the first two chapters, and I, I want to divide it up into, into three sections. <coughs> and so the first section is um, God reacts to sin. The first point is God reacts to sin. God reacts to sin. And then the second uh, group of verses, or the second point that we'll make is that people return to God. God reacts to sin, people return to God, and then, and then thirdly, finally, God responds to his people. God responds to his people. God reacts to sin, people return to God, and God responds to his people. Okay? So when, when, when Joel begins his, his prophecy, starting there in verse 2, the real beginning of it, it's, it's really, uh, really kind of captivating. There's this, this event that's happening. Uh, we don't know exactly, uh, again, what the time period was that this was happening in, but there's this, this huge event happening in the, in the life of the people that Joel's writing to, and he's trying to explain to them what's going on. Okay? There's this big uh, locust invasion of the land, and Joel's trying to explain to them what's going on, and then he's going to use that to talk about the, the future. Okay? So there's this, this big locust uh, swarm, this big locust in, in infestation. If you don't know what a locust is, just, just think of like a grasshopper. It's like a big grasshopper. It's in the same type of family as a, as a grasshopper. And if you've ever uh, been around grasshoppers or seen grasshoppers, they're really not that big a deal, right? We, I remember when I was a kid, we used to use grasshoppers for, for fishing bait at my granddad's pond. We'd catch them in the weeds and, and use them for bait. It's, they're, they're really not that big a deal if there's one of them, but if there's a swarm of them, then it can become a big deal. If there's a swarm, if there's one locust, uh, it's not that big a deal. But if there's a swarm of locusts, then that's a huge deal. That's a big deal. It means total destruction, especially on a, on a, on a situation where you're relying on farming and you're relying on, uh, on farming and, and herding, right? Because if you don't have food to feed yourself, that's a problem. If you're herders and you don't have food to feed the, the, the sheep or the flocks, then that's a, that's a problem. Locust invasions weren't really that, that uncommon in Israel. It, it, it's talked about in several different times, several different places in, in the Bible. But in this case, Joel seems to say that it's, it's especially bad. Okay? Let's look at a, at a few passages in, in Joel. Look at, look at chapter 1, look at verse 2. He says, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or in the days of your fathers? He says, Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. 
What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. He says nothing like this has ever happened before. Remember this. Tell your children about it. Tell your grandchildren about it. Tell your grandchildren's children about it. Right? It reminds me of Amos talking about the earthquake. He says he's writing two years after the earthquake. What earthquake? Well, they would have known the earthquake because it had a big impact on them. Right? He says, nothing like this has ever happened before. This is a huge disaster that, that, that kind of changes the way that we think about even, even our history. There's before the locust invasion, and now there's going to be after the locust invasion. That's how big a deal this invasion was. If you look down to verse 8, he, he kind of changes the, the picture a little bit. He says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. He says, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. So now we get a second level of, of, of how bad this is. It's bad because there's no food for the people. It's bad because there's no food for the animals. But now it's bad because there's no grain, there's no wine for the grain offerings and for the drink offerings. Now it's bad because they're not able to worship God rightly anymore. The third place he talks about this, look down to verse 17. He says, the seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And so again, it's hurting the people, there's no food. It's hurting the animals, the flocks are suffering, the herds are suffering. And it's hurting their relationship to God because they're not able to worship him the way that they're supposed to worship Okay, so this is one deal that's happening, is this big locust invasion. But then there seems to be a, a second thing going on. Look, look back to verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your youth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So is this a second problem? There's a, there's a locust invasion. Now there's an army invading uh, the nation. It, it could be two different things happening at the same time. Or, or it, it could be a metaphor, right? It could be that there's a nation invading and he's using the locust at the beginning as a metaphor to talk about how, the, how the, the invading nation's army is destroying their land and destroying their crops and those kind of things. Or it could be the opposite. It could be there's a locust invasion happening and, there's a, uh, and he uses the army metaphor, the invading nation metaphor as a way to talk about how strong these locusts are and there's, there's armies and armies and armies of the locusts that are coming on the, on the people. Or there could be a locust invasion and... Uh, the army invading at the same time. He could be talking about the Babylonians taking over. He could be talking about the Assyrians taking over in, in Israel. Either way, here's his point. Either way, this is really what he's talking about. Look at verse 13. 
He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He's calling the people to cry out to God. He's calling the people to, to wail to God because Joel sees this invasion of locusts. He sees this invasion of this army. He sees this as God's judgment against their sin. He sees this as God's judgment against their sin. God reacts to sin. Calling people to repent as a way of making the devastation stop is saying that it's God's judgment against them. And he adds judgment upon it by not even allowing them to worship, by taking away the means of their worship. Not being able to connect to God, not being able to worship God is another judgment. Another point here about God's judgment is that it's, it's, it's a judgment that's coming on God's own people, right? Um, in, in, when we get to Joel chapter 3 next week, it's going to talk about God's judgment coming against the nations, but here God's judging his own people for sins. God takes sin seriously. And if we're going to be God's people, we also have to take sin seriously. Even when it's committed by his own people. Maybe God takes sin seriously, especially when it's committed by his own people. But God takes sin seriously. Recently, in the last weeks and months, we've, we've seen this to some extent in in, in North America, among some church leaders. There have been some, some people in the news that have had long, hidden sin that's been exposed. And they're being judged for it. Churches have been harmed. Ministries have been harmed. And, and, and Joel reminds us that God takes sin seriously. He treats it seriously even among his own people. I don't, I don't know what's going on today in, in, in each of our lives. But let me just say this. Perhaps there's some type of hidden sin in your life here today. If so, then, then be aware that God takes that sin seriously. Be afraid that judgment is not a hypothetical thing, but judgment is something that God sins. If this, is a, if, if this is you, then also be aware that one of the most serious judgments that God might give against a person's sin is to give him up to it, right? It might be, uh, there, there may be some, some people here that have hidden sin to the point to where it doesn't really bother us anymore, to where our, our consciences aren't bothered. The, the, the guilt is not there anymore. That's a bad sign. In Romans, Paul tells us that this is what happens Sometimes God gives people up to a depraved mind. He gives people up to do what they want to do. He removes his restraining grace from them that they might become exactly what they want. They're hardened to sin. God takes sin seriously, even among, especially among his own people. And so what Joel does is he takes this, he takes this, uh, this event that's happening with these locusts, this event that's happening with this in, invasion whether it's people or locusts or, or both. And, and he, he explains it in terms of God's judgment against the people, but then he also uses it as a tool to talk about a future judgment that's going to come. 
Okay? He uses it as a, as a tool to, to point the people to a greater judgment that's coming one day. And this is kind of a natural thing to do, right? Whenever, whenever bad things happen, whenever major things happen, it often turns us toward the eternal, right? Uh, just think about how natural disasters do this, right? Remember the tornado that hit Hinderville, Indiana just a, just a few years ago. We sent groups from our church there to, uh, to, to help clean up some of that stuff. A, a former member of our church pastors at one of the churches in Hinderville, and we went and worked with his, with his church there. And I remember people thinking and people talking and being on people's minds, eternal things, right? Life is short. Life is fragile. Just yesterday, we had all this stuff, and, and everything was great. And today, we don't. And, and, and maybe someone's passed away, and maybe we're missing family members. And, and, and those kind of natural disasters, Hurricane Katrina is another example, that we could go on and on about them, but they, they remind us of eternal things. Acts of, acts of human evil do the same thing, right? Remember September 11th? Turn people to start thinking about eternal things. Turn people to start thinking about God and about what happens when bad things happen. I'm too young to remember this, but some of you probably remember the day that John F. Kennedy was shot. Or maybe the day that Robert F. Kennedy was shot, right? I remember being in eighth grade. I don't remember John F. Kennedy being shot, but I remember being in eighth grade and my teacher, my history teacher, talking about Kennedy and telling us that she remembered her, her teacher took her outside to her car so they could listen to it on the radio, took the whole class outside, and she could remember the red interior of her teacher's car just because it made that, that moment made such an impact on her. She remembered it. When things like that happen, we start to think about eternal things. We start to think about weighty things. We start to think about things that, that matter. And, and even just death does this, right? At funerals, we begin to think about eternal things. When we're at a funeral, we're thinking about the person who has passed away, and we're remembering their, their life and remembering good memories. But if you're like me, you can't help think about the day when you're going to pass away and think about the fact that, that, that death is coming one day and think about the fact that that means something. That's what we see Joel do here with this locust infestation. That's what we see Joel do here with this, with this army in, in invading that he's talking about. Not only does God send judgment against sin now, right? We see that sometimes. God sends judgments against sin now. But there's a greater day of judgment that's coming. There's a greater day of judgment that's coming where sin in its totality will be judged. Joel talks about this in, in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And then he says this, he says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. Their, their granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Joel introduces this idea here of the day of the Lord. And that's a common phrase that, that's picked up in, in several of the, of the minor prophets and even a couple of the major prophets 
But Joel's talking about the day of the Lord, meaning a, a day off in the future that's going to come that's judgment against sin. There's judgment happening now, and, and Joel's saying nothing like this has ever happened, right? This is the worst locust infestation we've ever had. Re- remember it. Tell your kids, tell your grandkids, tell your grandkids' grandkids. And then Joel says, but if you think this is something, there's another day coming. There's another judgment coming that this pales in comparison to. Look again to Joel chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. (coughs) The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw they're shining. This sounds bad, right? And this is really bad if it's an army from another nation, if it's the Assyrians coming, if it's the Babylonians coming. But listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. Joel says, you think it was bad when the locusts came? You think it was bad when the, when the, when the armies came and, and took over? Wait till the Lord's army comes. Wait till the Lord comes and, and, and judges sin. Point number one, God reacts to sin. Sin's a big deal. Sin's serious to God. And if it's serious to God, then it must be serious to us as well. But if God is the judge and if he takes sin so seriously and judgment is coming, judgment comes now <coughs> and judgment comes in the future, what should we do? How do we respond? And, and, and the answer may seem counterintuitive, right? Because it seems like if, if God is the judge and if, if judgment's coming and it's going to be bad and it, it's coming now and it's coming later in a, in a more full sense, more full way, it seems like the natural response would be fear, right? Or, or might even be anger. But that's not what Joel calls us to do. Look at Joel 1.19. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Judgment's here. Judgment's coming from God. And yet Joel's response is to cry out to God. To turn to the Lord. 
Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your hearts and do not, uh, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel tells the people, yes, God's coming. Yes, judgment's coming. God's coming to bringing his judgment. And yet there's hope. There's hope in God. There's hope in returning to the Lord. There's hope in, in going to the Lord and crying out for, for mercy. I love that he says, yet even now, right? Up until the very last moment, he says that at the beginning of verse 12. Yet even now, even, even when the judgment is upon, is upon them, he's saying even now, even at this point, at the very last second, at the, at the 12th hour, however you want to say that, even now there's hope in the Lord. Even now there's hope in the Lord. If you are, if you are someone with, with hidden sin in your life, if you are someone with, that, that's just struggling with sin, have hope. Even now there's hope in the Lord. Even now there's hope in the Lord. Even now, if you've been fighting this battle with sin for years and years and years, even now there's hope in the Lord. Even now, if you've been losing this battle for years and years and years, even now there's hope in the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Return to him. He says, turn back with all your heart, with everything that you have. He says, do it with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And he says, render or rend, tear your hearts, not your garments. God doesn't want us to have an outer appearance of returning to him, have an outer appearance of repentance. He wants repentance from a true heart. In Joel chapter 2, verse 15, he says this. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Sometimes we turn back to the Lord and, and repent of individual sins, of individual repentance. But sometimes we come back to the Lord corporately together as groups of people. Here he's calling the whole people of God to come back to him. To turn back to the Lord in worship. To repent of putting other things in the place of the Lord, to repent of putting other idols, other gods of the nations around them in the place of the Lord. Repent of not taking the Lord seriously. Repentance is, is admitting or embracing the truth of God and abandoning the lies of sin. Embracing and admitting the truth of God and abandoning the lies of sin. Think about what happened with Adam and Eve in, in the garden. Right? 
their sin was believing the lies of Satan and not believing the truth of God. Repentance is turning from that and admitting and embracing the truth of God. And that means admitting and embracing the truth of God about everything. And that means embracing and admitting the truth of God about ourselves, that we're sinful and that we're wrong and that we need forgiveness. I work at a group home for boys, 12 to 18 years old that have gotten in trouble and have been taken from their homes and they, they, they live with us for six to nine months and we have a program where we try to help them to, to get back with their families. But often, you know, things happen, of, of course, and, and often boys get into arguments or get into fights or say things that, that you wish they hadn't said. And, and, and so we meet with them and go through consequences for those actions. And, and, and often part of the consequences um, is that, especially if it's something that happened against a, a, an adult, a staff person, one of the one of the kind of baselines of the consequences is you have to write a letter of apology to that person, right? There's a difference in a letter of apology that says that just says I'm sorry for what happened, right? And a letter of apology that's specific about what happened, right? There was a boy that that did some things to me a few days ago, and he came in my office unprompted, didn't have to ask him to, and he came in my office, and he he didn't say I'm sorry about what happened. He said I'm sorry that I did this. And I'm sorry that I said this, right? There's, there's a difference in just generally, I'm, I'm sorry, and, and a broken, repentant, heart-torn, I'm, I'm upset over my sin. And God wants us to come to him the, the second way. And we pray that he would send his grace and, and spirit to work that in us. God takes sin seriously. He reacts to sin. People return to God. The third point is that God responds to his people. God responds to his people. God responds to the repentance of his people. Look back, at, we, we kind of glossed over this, but look back to Joel 2.13. This is maybe, maybe one of the best verses in, in, in the whole two chapters. Look back at Joel 2.13. In the middle of this chapter about judgment and how God's coming against his people to judge their sins. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Then he says, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, he relents over disaster. Christianity does not say that we have to somehow make a bargain with God where we do this and and, and then God responds to us in in that way. Christianity says, the Bible teaches that God is gracious, God is merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. God delights to forgive his people. God delights to take sin and do away with it. We're not bargaining with God, we're turning to the Lord and saying, God, it's not working. I need you, I need forgiveness. And God responds to that type of heart. Look, look at how he does it. He responds in, in, in three ways. The first thing he does when he responds to them is he restores them. He restores the people. In, in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, we're not going to read that, that whole section, but in, in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, it talks about how the Lord restores the people. First of all, he's going to restore their land. 
He's going to restore the land that the locusts have destroyed. He's going to restore the land that this army has destroyed. The, thec- the, the, the second thing he's going to, uh, he's going to um, restore is he's going to restore their reputation. He restores their reputation. Look at chapter 2, verse 27. He says, you shall know that I am the Lord, or you shall know that I am the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. He takes their shame away. He restores their reputation. He's also restoring their time. There's time wasted in sin, right? There's time wasted in sin. Some of us are, are, are younger. Some of us are, are older. But all of us have wasted years, sometimes longer than that, in, in sin. Some of us have wasted months and years in a row in rebellion against God. Some of us look back on our, on our lives and, 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 and we regret many, many past decisions, many past actions, many past attitudes. And we think, if, if I had just been following God during that season of my life, or if I would just been following God during this season of my life, God restores their time to them. God restores them. He restores their land, their reputation, their time. The, the, the second way that God responds to his people, look at, look at Joel chapter 2, look at verse 26 and 27. He says, you shall, eat, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. The Lord restores them. The second way the Lord responds to them is just by his presence. He says that I will be in Israel. This is, this is maybe the best of the benefits of God's forgiveness. The best gift that God can give us is not restoring the land. It's not restoring our reputation, not, not, not restoring our time. The best gift that God can give to us is himself. The best gift that God can give to us is the ability to worship him, the ability to connect with him, the ability to uh, to, to, to not be divided from him anymore. He enables them to worship him. In their sin, he had hidden himself from them. In their sin, he, uh, he, he was far from them. He was distant from them. And yet in their repentance, he will be with them again. The third thing, or the third way that God responds to his people is through redemption. He restores them, his presence with them, and he redeems them. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. <clears throat> he says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. God redeems his people. He pours out his spirit on his people. Here Joel says that he will do that. He's looking to the future. He says he will do that. He's pouring out his spirit on his people. No longer will the fight against sin be something on the outside of us, but now the Lord's spirit will be inside of us. 
It'll happen on the inside. God's people will have the Spirit of God with them, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, enabling us to truly be God's people in every sense of the word. God takes sin seriously. If we're going to be his followers, we have to take sin seriously too. We respond to our sin, or we ought to respond to our sin by repenting, by turning back to the Lord. And when we repent, the Lord responds to our repentance. He responds in faithfulness, he responds in mercy, he responds in love, he responds in grace, he responds in patience. He responds in redemption. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful this morning to be in your presence. God, that's not something that we've done on our own. We haven't brought ourselves here. We haven't made a way that that, that we can be with you. God, we haven't bargained with you to to, to make a way to, to get rid of our sins. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us to yourself. God, we thank you for your son Jesus, that through him you've brought us to yourself. And God, I pray that you would keep us, even as we sang earlier today, earlier this morning. God, I pray that you would hold us fast to your son, Jesus. God, keep us from sin. When we do sin, Father, lead us quickly to repentance, that we might be brought back to you. Lord, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.